Chapter 32 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 32 Summary A condensed summary of the incidents and spirit of a career already so fully illustrated as that of Miss Dix seems hardly called for. Her story is one that tells itself as it goes along. Still, it may be well in a few words to gather in hand the separate threads and weave them into a combined picture of the essential characteristics of her life and work. The childhood of Miss Dix was, as has been seen, bleak, humiliating, and painful more so, indeed, than it has been deemed needful to record. By the age of twelve, the prematurely thoughtful little girl clearly foresaw that she would have to take into her own hands the problem of her future destiny, as well as of the destiny of her two child brothers. How bitter her earliest experience was, is evident from the fact that never to her dying day would she unlock her lips on the subject to her most intimate friend. At an age, then, when most children are carelessly living in their little world of dolls, the proud and sensitive child keenly felt that she would have to conquer for herself and others a foothold in the world. At once her inborn decision of character displayed itself. She ran away from her mortifying and belittling present that she might secure the possibility of a more promising future. Independent she would be, and master of the means of carrying out what was then the strongest desire in the heart of the premature child mother to fit herself to become a teacher seemed the one way to achieve her purpose it was the new england ideal of honorable work it fell in with her own thirst for knowledge and it opened up a field for forcefully impressing herself on others always so predominant a trait of her character thus from the start were the intrepidity and rational clearness of her mind revealed. Underlying, however, this exceptional energy and ambition, there lay a temperament of extreme sensitiveness, of a sensitiveness, indeed, so acute as physically to betray itself all through her girlhood and young womanhood in a quick flushing of the face whenever she was addressed all her views of life took on an idealistic shape. She craved the society of refined, intellectual, and morally superior people. She reveled in poetry. She was a worshiper of intellectual greatness. She was full of heartbreak for affection. She drank in passionately the religious prophecies of teachers like Channing. And yet, her love of knowledge, beauty, and spirituality were at the last remove from selfish absorption in the pursuit of them. Poverty, ignorance, and degradation distressed her as keenly as their opposites allured her. 
and the moment she could command the means, she began to gather together the children of neglect and misery, to make them sharers in a richer life. Every ideal in her mind thus tended irresistibly to practical benevolent action, the religious fervor of her nature finding vent in enthusiastic personal love of him who went about doing good, and who yearned to make all life a perpetual feast of love and beauty to which from the highways and hedges the outcast should be invited in the wedding garment thrown over their rags and misery there is then no way of understanding the later career of this outwardly so self-sustained and commanding woman apart from the full recognition of the intensity of an emotional temperament pouring out the molten metal which shaped every lineament in the gradually consolidating bronze statue this temperament was at once the exultation and the despair of her youth and the hiding place of the power of her oncoming days what kept her sane through the terrible strain of her later years was the relief she got in the passionate love and study of nature in her power of swiftly kindling to ideal visions of what could and should be made real and in adoring communion with god through whose help she rested assured all things were possible thus even in the extreme of physical exhaustion as after her memorable campaign in scotland the inextinguishable fervor of her nature leaps up into its old wonted flame the moment she hears of a new field of promise in the island of jersey i shall see their chains off she enthusiastically writes in a letter already quoted in a previous chapter i shall take them into the green fields and show them the lovely little flowers and the blue sky and they shall play with the lambs and listen to the song of the birds and a little child shall lead them this is no romance this will all be if i get to the channel islands with god's blessing the romantic ideal they shall play with the lambs the splendid self-confidence if i get there the devout recognition with god's blessing here lay the three root motive powers of the woman throughout the schoolkeeping period of miss dix's life the contradictory elements in her nature intense and even perilous sensibility held down and often trampled underfoot by rigid ascetic willpower were never really harmonized sensibility to ideals dictated for herself and for her pupils a height of consecration to knowledge duty and service beyond the possibility of realization while inflexible will instituted rules and practices which took no count of flesh and blood and were severe and monastic to an extreme periods of exhaustion and irritability with subsequently the swift advance of threatening pulmonary disease were the penalty she herself paid 
while, in the case of the children, some looked back to their school experience with pain, and others declared that they owed to it the best they had ever been or done in life. With Miss Dix, it ended, as has been seen, in the utter collapse of her physical powers. Her mind, however, proudly sustained by the feeling that no sharpness of suffering had ever moved her to flinch, that she had made a home for her younger brothers and launched them on the world, had achieved independence, and finally had set a stamp on large numbers of young lives that would be indelible for good as long as they should live. Next follows the 18 months of extreme illness and languishing in Liverpool, England, the jubilee year of her life, as she always termed it, the period for all its pain and all its near prospect of death, in which she felt she had been permitted the most luxuriously to surrender herself to leisure, beauty, domestic love, and spiritual communion with heaven. It wrought a marked softening and enriching influence on her character. Still, it was destined to be followed on her return to America by the saddest and most disenchanted period of her earthly experience. Reaching home a feeble invalid, her career as a teacher over, Lonely and with no distinct prospect before her for the future, she felt herself an exile in her own land. Now first came to her the unifying power, which was to fuse into one harmonious whole the contradictory elements of her nature. Once she was brought into contact with the abyss of human misery opened up and the condition of the outcast insane in Massachusetts, and, as she soon discovered, all over the Union, then forthwith in the overpowering call of God to dedicate herself to their championship, she became revealed to herself and revealed to others. Had she stood and simply gazed down into that abyss of woe, it would have paralyzed so sensitive a nature. But high above all the moaning and despair, she heard the angel song of the new gospel of glad tidings of great joy to them that sat in darkness, revealed to the world through the humane inspiration of such sons of consolation as Pinnell and Took. To the fervid apostleship of this, to her New Jerusalem, descending like a bride from the heavens, would she consecrate her life. Look on this picture, and on this, was henceforth the pole star of her guidance. Here then, it at once became clear, was a nature demanding a large field on which to deploy its forces, forces which shut up to anything lesser must inevitably have preyed on herself and preyed on others. Now could she plan great enterprises. Now could she measure her indomitable moral will against the apathy and selfishness of whole legislatures 
and finally kindle in their hearts the enthusiasm of humanity. Now could she command and dispose of enormous pecuniary resources, the outcome of public taxation. Now could she cause in twenty states vast structures to rise out of the ground which should take into the merciful keeping of their quiet, beauty, and skill those heretofore chained, scourged, and pinched with cold. Now could she create the national conditions of a great school of insanity and open a career to the eminent men who were destined to carry so far the name and fame of her native land. No wonder she grew happier. She was made for such happiness. No wonder she grew healthier. The caged and drooping eagle in her nature was now afloat on the great spaces in which alone it could find vigor and joy. Then forthwith was it seen how the very powers, the excess of which had been faults in a more restricted sphere, proved the exact means to her great ends. The very persistency of will, which exercised on minor matters, had often been trying to others, now took the leadership of the forlorn hope, and became the assurance of victory on victory making strong men, like her friend Dr. Butolf, write her, I have learned from you never to despair. The very self-confidence which, shut up to little things, might easily have been characterized as assumption, now inspired her to seemingly impossible feats of moral daring, which became their own splendid justification. The very asceticism which exerted in a round of trivial duties had been injurious to mind and body now became power to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ, the spur to scorn delights and live laborious days. The very reticence which, in social life, had proved a barrier to closer intimacy and often had defeated the craving for affection so intense in her self-repressed nature, now enabled her to hold her own counsel, and while the repository of the secret history of two-thirds of the asylum in the land, never in a single instance to betray confidence. Finally, that very yearning to relieve misery, and that passionate wrath over its longer existence, which left to themselves would either have unnerved or have consumed her, now became the reacting motive to plunge into practical work and achieve mastership over every detail of hospital construction and hospital management. The marvelous series of campaigns of pure humanity won by this single-handed woman and resulting in the establishment of such a host of asylums has already been sufficiently described. Imagination is feeble to call up the extent and enduring character of this her work. It is only by one who has journeyed over the many states of the Union and seen with the bodily eye the enormous structures and park-like grounds she, 
with the wand of her moral genius made to start out of the earth that it can be adequately conceived. Then first the beholder feels the force of the words written her as far back as 1850 by President Fillmore. Quote, Accept my sincere thanks for the print of the hospital for the insane in Tennessee. When I looked upon its turrets and recollected that this was the thirteenth monument you had caused to be erected of your philanthropy, I could not help thinking that wealth and power never reared such monuments to selfish pride as you have reared to the love of mankind. End quote. It will be recalled from previous chapters how frequently the impression made by the absolute consecration of mystics to her work had led many superintendents and private benefactors of asylums all over the land to speak of her as Our Lady, Our Patron Saint. A strain of medievalism, certainly not very common in practical unimaginative America. Indeed, in a memorial notice written after her death by Dr. Daniel Hacktook of England, the same idea recurs when, in alluding to his own visit to America, he says, quote, The writer has observed, in at least one asylum chapel, the portrait of this saintly woman on the wall where in a Roman Catholic church the Virgin Mary would have been placed. End quote. None can doubt that had she lived in earlier ages of the world, her works of mercy would have led to her actual canonization, and that on the altarpieces of churches her halo-crowned figure, marked by some especial symbol, would have become as familiar a sight as those of St. Catherine of Siena or Santa Barbara. Surely the poor dazed and broken minds of the demented could invoke from a higher realm no more merciful or prevailing spirit. It is, however, an admirable custom in the Roman Catholic Church that, Whenever its prelates are summoned to deliberate the momentous question of adding to the sacred calendar a new name, one out of their number should be appointed to enact the part of what is termed the advocatus diaboli, or devil's advocate. His duty it is to rake out of every hidden quarter and every unguarded hour of life the worst that can possibly be urged against the candidate for canonization. A world-old idea this, one already imaginatively glorified as far back as in the days of the book of Job, where, before the court of God and his angels, appears Satan the adversary, to challenge the name of the man pronounced perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. In the light of the frailty of human nature, even at its best estate, the custom, let it be repeated, is an admirable one, and one that falls in with every natural instinct of justice. Only with the needful proviso, 
that the preternatural acuteness of the adversary for discovering spots even on the face of the sun shall not be suffered to outweigh the entire mass of counter-testimony to the fact that, after all is said, the sun remains a resplendent luminary. The only serious faults that were ever urged against the character of Miss Dix were that, in minor matters, many people thought her too much inclined to take the reins into her own hands, too inflexible and dictatorial in her treatment of the judgment of others, and that at times her self-consciousness was oppressive. These were instinctive elements in her nature, manifest from childhood. In reality, without the strong taproot in her being from which they sprang, she could never have achieved her enormous work. They are elements of character, the praise or blame of which turns wholly on what other qualities of mind are allied with them. United with clear ideas and noble purposes, they lead on to grand results and it is only when bound up with narrow thoughts and petty personal ends that they prove morally censurable. No great character can keep always at its high water mark. There comes times of exhaustion and disenchantment when the higher qualities of the intellect and soul are in abeyance, and the automatic habit of the underlying native temperament alone asserts itself. Emphatically, the automatic habit of Miss Dix's nature was that of imperial command, the instinct of taking into her own hands the decision of momentous questions involving the welfare or misery of thousands, and of undauntedly insisting, no matter in the face of whom, in the face of legislature, Congress, Parliament, or Pope, this way, in the name of the father of the fatherless, this way, and no otherwise shall it be. For it, thousands and tens of thousands, who elsewise would have continued to languish in misery, had occasion to rise up and call her blessed. That this great title set of a powerful nature should at times in minor matters and when no large idea was longer present, have swept persistently on, was a fault of character of which, when the most is made, no serious detraction from her greatness remains. The older superintendents of asylums, who recognized the immense debt of obligation under which they lay to her, smiled good-humoredly at such trifling peculiarities knowing full well what a strong hold justice and mercy ever maintained in her heart, and that it was, after all, a godly jealousy for the sacred name of the institutions she yearned over that made her so insistent that no jot or tittle should pass from their law. The faults, then, of the character of Miss Dix belonged to the class of what have been aptly named the faults of one's virtues. That is, they grew out of the excess of good and great qualities. The phrase is a most significant one. 
not that a fault does not still remain a fault, and a virtue a virtue, and yet it would be but the barest justice to add that of all her feats of dominating obstacles, the greatest feat of them all was the success with which through long, long years she dominated the extremes of her own sensitive, fiery, and commanding spirit. Throughout her whole asylum life, it was her struggle, and almost always successful struggle, to hide the imperious element in her nature under the cover of an unfailing patience, sweetness of persuasion, and utter sinking of self in the cause of the poor outcasts for whom she was pleading. I perceive, wrote to her President Fillmore in 1850, during her long struggle in Washington, that you feel anxious and sad, I cannot wonder at it. I wonder your patience has held out so long and that you can speak with such equanimity. But yours is a goodness that never tires, a benevolence that never wearies, a confident hope that never seems to desert you. None but the most disinterested and self-sacrificing can have such faith or display such all-conquering perseverance. Did then persons at times accuse her of being interfering and dictatorial in smaller matters? Be it so. She had come heroically by the fault, even when it was a fault. For by what had it been bred in her? Simply by this, that all through her long and self-sacrificing public career of over forty years it had been the very burden of God laid on her shoulders to interfere now with brutal almshouse keepers, now with a low and besotted state of public opinion, now with selfish politicians, now with narrow partisan legislatures, yes, and to persist in interfering till the voice of justice and mercy prevailed. Surely such virtues were resplendent enough to swallow up in their light the few faults of her virtues. The prescribed limits of this biography forbid the introduction here of the grateful and detailed tributes paid after her death to the memory of Miss Dix at the annual convention of the Association of Superintendents of American Insane Asylums, as well as embodied in the yearly reports of the many and vast institutions she had founded. With scarcely the faintest note of dissent, they were in one vein of praise and veneration. It was for the judgment of the competent that she alone ever cared, and the seal of this was indelibly stamped on her name and work. Had she taken thought of mere personal fame and yielded to the constant appeals of governors and state legislatures, her name carved in stone would be read today over the portals of more stately structures than were ever from the foundation called after any private man or woman. As it was, the Dix Ward of the McLean Asylum, Somerville, Massachusetts, 
and Dixmont Hospital, Pennsylvania, are the only institutions where, except for her portrait hanging in so many of their chapels, there is anything visible to suggest her name. Very pleasant is it, however, to round off this summary of the more public characteristics of so salient a character with the notice of a more private trait peculiarly feminine in its nature a straw perhaps but still a straw which reveals the main set of the current of a life dedicated to going about doing good although herself an unmarried woman who in early life had met a blight of her affections after an engagement with a cousin miss dix retained till late in her days a romantic fondness for bringing together those she thought fitted to make loving helpmates to one another, and then leaving it to the elective affinities to complete the process of domestic attraction and cohesion. In this eager disposition of the woman who had never known the blessedness of a home of her own to enact the part of special providence in securing a happy home for others, her judgment again and again proved as clear as her heart was warm one series of letters was there left among her papers from a superintendent and his wife both long since dead and whom none now living can name that were one continuous chant of benediction to the lady bountiful who had so tenderly and delicately brought them together and secured them nineteen years of unbroken domestic love. Innumerable likewise, as illustrating the purely womanly side of Miss Dix's nature, were the letters from sick rooms and homes of bereavement, containing each some such endearing message as, In this I place a couple of heartsease blossoms from our garden. They seem to me peculiarly your flower. End of chapter 32 Recording by Phyllis Vincelli End of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany